Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I think that the biggest question in Jewish ethics was epitomized by a song that became famous by Sesame Street. What song would that have been? This is an opening question. Who are the people in your neighborhood? Can you sing it? <laughs> Until I have If you start, we'll join in. Come on. In your neighborhood. In your neighborhood. Oh, who are the people in your neighborhood? The, I don't know how it goes from there. <laughs> the meet each day. Very good, very good. Okay, there you go. So, you know that someone wrote a book, uh, this minister on the West Coast said, everything I need to learn, I learned in kindergarten, which is very, actually a very profound book. I, I've gone through it. I forget the name of the, the, the author. But actually, everything you need to know about Jewish ethics is epitomized in that song. But the song is a question. It's not an answer. Okay, because the question is, who are the people in in my neighborhood. So what verse does that conjure up in your mind? Why is that the key verse, that, the key song that epitomizes the biggest problem in Jewish ethics? For whom are we responsible? Good, okay, and let's, you're right about that, and if we wanted to root that in a core text, what, that, what would that text be? From the Bible. You want to your neighbor, you want to your neighbor. Bingo, bingo. So actually, that's actually the rabbinic version of it, okay? That comes later on from Hillel, but actually, the precursor to that rabbinic version goes back to Leviticus, chapter 19, but you're very close. So what's the origin that generates that Hillel statement? Do not do, do, not do it. No, that's, no, those are both in rabbinic. But you're, you, you, the answer's here. You guys know this. The first word is v'yahavta. Okay, that's it. Leviticus, chapter 19, v'yahavta l'reacha kamocha, which means you shall love thy neighbor or your neighbor as you love yourself, okay? Now, it sounds great. You might want to put it on a poster, or put it up on your wall in your dorm if you're going to go to college soon, or your kids or grandchildren go to college, okay? But what does it mean? What does it mean? You shall love thy neighbor as thyself. Three, three words in Hebrew, and it's very complicated. What does it mean? What do you think? Okay. Which isn't very realistic or true. Not realistic and not true. Say more, okay? You're onto something here. Go yeah. ahead. I mean, I think, you know, in theory, you're supposed to think, well, it would be nice. You always put your self interest, you understand your self interest better than you understand anybody else's self interest. So mm -hmm. naturally, you're going to be able to uh, uh, define your self interest more clearly. But in, but in practice, you are trying to empathize with others, even though you can't necessarily succeed. Good. Anyone else? Well, the love means connection. So 
of it, the peace there. It's not how you connect with others. Um, there's a much, the love is a deeper feeling. It's not just how one reacts to each other. It's really not my husband, what he said, but there's something there with connection. But okay. And by the way, the love word is deeply problematic. Deeply problematic because there's a, uh, a vikuach, a debate in the Talmud between Rabbi Akiva and, uh, whoa, uh, Ben Azai. Okay, Ben Azai, about what is the core principle of Torah. Rabbi Akiva says, he, uses, he quotes his verse saying, This is the key principle, everything else flows from there. And Ben Azai comes along and says, No. And the reason he says no is, he says, You cannot command a person to love. You can command a person to give charity. You can command a person to fast or not fast. You can command a person to light candles. You can command a lot of actions. How can you command an emotion? I mean, numbers, we may not be capable of it. So Benazir says you can't make that a core principle because it depends on a lot of things about what brings about love. And by the way, we fall in and out of love all the time, even with the people who are most precious to us. My wife and I, the secret of our marriage of 34 years is that we're falling in and out of love every day. And falling back in love with my wife is a beautiful thing. Okay? And the reason we have to fall back in love is because we fall out of love, too. Because we get into behaviors that actually... Don't generate love. Generate, like, wow, how did that happen? And then we fall in love again. Maybe that the love in the Ahavta uh, is not the, the love that we're talking about, you know, that we traditionally would associate with an emotion. Maybe it's to make sure that, I mean, it might, it might stand for something else. Let's say maybe it would stand for provide or help or... Respect. Res yeah, respect. Possible. That, I, I mean, that would be, if you were... You probably could be hired as an attorney for Rabbi Akiva, and that would be a great way to make the argument, just to defend why it's a core principle, okay? But here's the other problem about that verse, okay? You've mentioned one that it's unnatural to love others as much as you would love yourself, because how would you know what they need? Second is the problem of the love, and the third problem is a problem from the Sesame Street song, which is why I started with that song, right? And that is, who is the Reacha? Who is your Reacha? Who is your neighbor? Who are the people in our neighborhood? How wide is the universe of obligation? Okay. Now, how would you define reacha? Who's in? Who's out? No one's out. No one's out. So all humanity, okay? All humanity would say, okay? Anyone? I'd say the community. Define it. The, the people that you're associated with, either through a synagogue, through an organization, through an off an, in your office, that's your community, people that you're, you hang out with, so to speak. Okay, now the reality is that's a good answer, and I'm going to tell you what the problematic is about the answer, okay? Uh, we're actually, all of us are part of multiple communities, okay? So you could say you're part of the community of Greater Phoenix, right? You could say you're part of some people say, I'm a, I'm a community of women, like feminist consciousness, or I'm a community of LGBT folk, or people, or I'm a Democrat, or a Republican, you know? Uh, or you can say that um, my communities are Jews. Like, a lot, we're in a lot of communities, okay? Not just one community, okay? And it is true that if we are in some relationship based on ideology, politics, preferences, community of Eagles fans against Patriot fans. Those are another communities, right? There are all these ways that we define it. And by the way, if you're from Philadelphia, you totally understand what it's like 
Are you from Philadelphia? My wife's from Philadelphia. I spent <laughs> 10 years there, okay? So Philadelphia erupted last night. It was a great game, right? So, and by the way, sports fans very much feel that's part of their community. So community is relational, okay? So the problem with, your first name is? Stan. So Stan gives kind of a, a definition without limits. Everyone could be your neighbor or should be your neighbor. And you don't exclude anyone. That may be what, okay, that's interesting. Okay, so that may be what you'd like it to say, but it's unclear whether it does say that. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute, okay? And you are? Alan. And Alan is saying it's based on your relationship with them. The reality is that historically, the majority opinion of the rabbis, and we talk about now when I say the rabbis, who are the rabbis? In religion, you have Chazal, Chachamim Zechonam Levracha, meaning the wise ones, may their memory be a blessing, okay? The majority view of Chazal, the sages, is that Recha is actually just Jews. So it doesn't go your way. It doesn't go your way at all. There's a minority view that says it should be everyone, but that's a minority view, okay? And this is fought out again and again. I'm gonna give you some examples, okay? So it, it all depends on what verses I choose to share with you, okay? And by the way, wherever you go and whoever's teaching you, we've always got to say, like, what is their angle? Where are they coming from? Because most people who are in an audience with rabbis in front of the room don't have enough knowledge to know the extent to which the rabbi who's teaching you is cherry-picking, because most rabbis cherry-pick. I can deliver exactly the number of verses to prove my point in any given situation. And by the way, on Tuesday I can prove white, and on Wednesday I can prove black. Okay, just based on what verses I choose to share with you. You're none the wiser. Not because I want to trick you, I'm just gonna, the, the, the tradition is so vast and complex, okay? So let me try and kind of sh share a few kind of both sides to see how complicated this issue is. So you have a, a verse in Talmud, in uh, Masaka Gitin, which is the tractate about laws of divorce, ironically, but don't get hung up with that because the fact that there's a title on the binder of a Talmudic volume doesn't mean that everything in that volume is about divorce. Talmud is not linear, it's circular, it goes all over the place. So you might start with divorce and then they could be talking about, you know, boring chickens and, and, and burying the dead, okay? So this verse comes from Gitin where it says, we support the poor of the non-Jews along with the poor of Israel. We bury the non-Jewish dead along with burying the dead of Israel. We visit the non-Jewish sick with a sick among Israel. And we do it mitnei darchei shalom. Why do we do that? Now, essentially, the first three things, it talks about three mitzvot, which are commanded to be done, okay? One is helping the poor, second is burying the dead, and third is visiting the sick, all mitzvot, okay? And it says in Gitin, our obligations towards non-Jews are the same as the obligations towards Jews. It's not like, okay, this guy is poor and is Jewish, I'll help him. This guy is poor, not Jewish, I don't need to help him. It says equal treatment. That's what this says, okay? The reason that's given is, which translates as, for the ways of peace. And by the way, there are many, many uh, commandments or, or rulings in the Talmud that end with that, those three words. We do it for the sake of peace, which is actually code word for, we probably don't want to do it, but we probably should which is kind of interesting. In other words, there are a lot of times when the rabbis teach us to do that which we are not inclined to do. In fact, you know, when it says is that we're actually commanded to, uh, if, if a friend and an enemy both are in distress, 
The commandment is to help your enemy first because your first inclination is to help your friend. So in other words, the rabbis know a little bit about human nature. They actually know a lot about human nature. And they're saying, trying to say Torah is about elevating us to be our higher selves and not simply to work towards our self-interest. Kind of interesting, okay? Now, starting with that nice verse, which would actually be in your category, you know, whoever wrote that line was a universalist as you might be, right? And saying Reacha is all people. There's no qualification for who our neighbor is. But here's the truth of the matter is. There are a lot of laws in the Talmud about what are our, our what our what are our obligations to return lost items to people who lost them? Okay? And the majority of opinions in the early period of the Talmud is that you're obligated to return lost items to Jews, but not to non-Jews. Yeah, you know, so a few people. Are, that's like how very distinct Isn't it? Yes. Okay. Everything I'm going to say right now is going to contradict what I said before. Because, because there are all these things going on in, in, in our tradition. Now, why would that be? So we find it very upsetting to hear that. Why, why would we do that? And the reason is, that the argument goes, the rabbis say, because if they found an object of ours, they wouldn't return it to us. Oh. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Now, you may not like that reasoning, but that was actually justification. Okay? So for a long time, we had this rule saying, you're obligated to return lost items to Jews, but not to non-Jews. Okay? There's a passage in the Shulchan Aruch, which is the law of, of uh, uh, kind of how we're supposed to live our lives, that says that you cannot even uh, loan or give wine to a Gentile because they're likely to use it for some idolatrous practice. And then if, you, if that happens, you're complicit. You have provided the equipment for them to engage in idol worship. Now, there's a big, big debate and the rabbis throughout the Middle Ages about whether Christians, Gentiles, are idolaters or not. Because if they're idolaters, there's a whole bunch of categories which essentially says you don't need to do anything on their behalf, okay? And it goes back and forth and back and forth until in the, uh, in the 12th century, Rabbi, Rabbi Tom actually rules that Gentiles should not be considered idolaters, okay? What he says, and this is now a very progressive view, but it's gone back and forth now for centuries about this, okay? About whether you can spend any time or be in business partnerships with Gentiles, whatever else. If they're idolaters, it's clear that they're not. But if they are monotheists, they can be. And the rabbis couldn't figure out whether Christians were monotheists or not. Like, what's this thing with the, with the Trinity, you know? Sounds like more than one to me, right? Because in Trinity, is like, isn't that the three? Now, if you read Christian theology, they'll say it's three, which is really one, and you know, it's that kind of thing. The rabbis couldn't figure it out. It was too complicated. But Rabbi Tom says, no, Gentiles are monotheists. They're not idolaters. And so you can return property to them, and you should. You can enter into partnerships with them. You can loan them some wine, wine okay? They're not idol worshipers. That's a breakthrough. So this is all about progress is slow. It takes a 1,000 years or so to move through this, okay? Here's something else that's going to upset you, and then I'll calm you down. You know that uh, there are a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't do on Shabbat, right? Now, one rule, you know what pikuach nefesh means? Mm -hmm. Pikuach nefesh is the law of saving a life. Pikuach nefesh, okay? Pikuach nefesh is the law to save a life. The, the vast majority of rabbis rule that if somebody is about to die, and you can only save their life by breaking a rule of Shabbat, you're allowed to do it. 
Now, today we might think about like driving someone to the hospital, okay? But obviously these rules are developed way before we had the automobile. There are other things that might happen, okay? So for example, the situation in the Talmud specifically is that if a building or a wall collapsed on someone and they were under, they were crushed, they were being crushed, they're still alive, okay? Are you allowed to lift the stones up? Now, if it's not in an A-roof, which creates a private domain, which would allow you to carry, you can't lift a stone up. It would be prohibited, okay? But if someone's life is at risk, it says, yes, you can lift it up. So then one rabbi asked the question, obviously the troublemaker in the, in the lot, what if the person who's trapped under the stone is a Gentile? And the majority opinion is, you don't break the rules of Shabbat for a Gentile, just for a Jew. Hard to hear, hard to hear. You say, is that our tradition? And that was the ruling for a long time, okay? It took till the 20th century for one of the great post one of the great uh, halakha decisors of the Orthodox community, Moshe Feinstein, who actually said, living as we do in America, where we are in regular interaction with, with Gentiles and we do things together and whatever else, it's not the Middle Ages any longer. He says, such ruling can no longer stand. And rather, Moshe Feinstein puts out a ruling to say, no, you can break the rules of Shabbat if life is a risk, Jew or Gentile. So we come from a tradition that speaks not with one voice. It's multivocal, okay? Which is why I can tell you A on Tuesday and not A on Wednesday and support it with verses, and you'd be none the wiser, okay? But I think what I want you to walk away with is to say how the Jewish, the rabbis, wrestled with this whole question that we started with, how big is our universe of obligation? How wide is it? If I ask you the question that we started with, universe of obligation, okay? Uh, so we have a universalist and a particularist in the room, okay? Uh, again, your first name was? Stan. Stan. So would you say that you have an equal obligation to support, uh, if you have two people who are in need, one person is a relative of yours, and, and let's say they are in some danger of losing their life, okay? And there's a child starving to death in Biafra. Is your obligation equivalent to both those individuals? It's probably not equivalent. I don't, really, I don't think really that's what, what the passage means by either. So I, I think it means to care about everyone, but you're gonna have to pick and choose. I mean, who, who among us does not give more money to Jewish charities than we do to non-Jewish charities? Mm -hmm. We shouldn't exclude non-Jewish charities. Okay, I like that formulation. Okay, the question is, how wide is our universe of obligation? That's the really big question, okay? And I think you responded appropriately to say that in theory, the life of your relative, whomever that might be, is not more valuable than the child starving in Biafra, but from a practical point of view, you're likely to mobilize much more quickly for a person you know, certainly a family member, than you are for some person you've never met before and may never meet again, right? And, and that's the question that's posed by this whole issue of universe of obligation. How wide is it? Okay, so, yeah. I think it's, a, it's as wide as your resources will allow it to be. Everybody's, everybody is limited in resources, whether it's time, energy, financial, so your obligation is as wide and as deep as your ability. Okay. You can't touch every soul. Okay. But you, you, know, you can touch this. I think our obligation is to touch as many souls as we can. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, 
I wish it were true that people's broadness of obligation is commensurate with their wealth. That's not true. We, we know that's not true. We know it true anecdotally. We know it through empirically, okay? Uh, it's a nice idea. In other words, the notion is, if I had enough to save every person on the planet, I would do that. But we just know it's true. We, we know what people's philanthropic patterns are. In fact, among the things that are like very stark and very real is that poor people give a higher percentage of their income to charity than wealthy people. But poor people give a higher percentage of their wealth, okay? Which is, I think, proof text for the greatest addiction we have is not to drugs or alcohol or smoking. It's to wealth, to money. We get addicted to it. But that's not okay? the question. The question was, what's our obligation, not how are we fulfilling that obligation? Well, it's both a matter of quantity and then also distribution. It's, there's a distribution principle here about where does your charity, both in terms of action as well as your dollars, where does it go? Okay. So every one of us is actually the dot at the center of concentric circles of, of, of obligation. Okay. And this is, by the way, the question from the Sesame Street song. Okay. Who is Re'acha? That's the transliteration. Oops, that was supposed to be a question mark. Sorry. You know, who is our neighbor? Okay. How far and wide need it be? Okay. Uh, now, there is a principle that's taught in the Talmud that says, Aniyei Ircha Kodmim, which means the poor of your own community take precedence over the poor of another community. So let's think about the world in which the Talmud is being written, okay? It may not be that different than this world, okay? If you live in, in the village of Minsk, okay, uh, a person who's poor in Minsk should get your charitable dollar before the person in Krakow, okay? Because you live in Minsk, okay? And what probably is true in terms of geogra geographic proximity is probably also true in terms of ethnic and religious proximity, okay? So, for example, if you're in Minsk and there's a poor Gentile and a poor Jew, the principle of the poor of your community come first, also has been extrapolated to mean you help the Jew first, the non-Jew second. Now, how can that be true, as well as the verse I read to you at the beginning from Geekton that says, We've, we bury the dead of the non-Jews as we would bury the dead of the Jews. We visit the sick of the non-Jews. How do you square those two principles? How do you square those two principles? Very hard. Now, the way it gets answered is this, is essentially that we all start here, taking, putting priority on our, ourself, and we need to find ways to constantly expand our consciousness, our activity, and our philanthropy wider and wider to the extent we can. In principle, what I think Jewish ethics is teaching us is that we have an equal obligation if the starving child in Biafra, the example I gave you, is here on the outskirts of your various conceptual circles of, 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 your, of your life, is here, okay? And your first circle is your immediate family, okay? It's clear that you're going to put more time, energy, passion into the here, but in principle, it's not as if you have no obligation to this child here. Now, whether you can actually act on that or not is a big question. And just speaking personally, um, we've been very conscious and, and actually have talked to our kids a lot. Uh, not that we're giving away millions of dollars a year, but in our own philanthropy, we've thought very con consciously about how much we give to Jewish causes and how much we give to non-Jewish causes. And we've 
taught our kids about that as well. And in fact, in my, own, in my congregation, uh, where I served as rabbi for eight years, uh, still involved there, but uh, when kids became bar by mitzvah, we would ask kids to take a percentage of the money that they were going to get as gift and commit it uh, in equal portions to a Jewish cause and a non-Jewish cause. And we would actually, at their bar about mitzvah, we would actually announce from the bimah that Johnny Rosenberg or Sarah Goldberg you know, was committing you know, a percentage of her bar about mitzvah money, and we'd name the two causes that they chose. And we did it as a teaching moment. First, it was a teaching moment for the child to understand that the obligation cuts both ways. And then it was a teaching moment for all the people, friends, family, and members of the congregation to say, we, in principle, we are committed both to this child and to our own causes. Okay? I think it's very important. And by the way, given this is part of the lecture I gave this, this afternoon, I am convinced that the young people who came through the process where their rabbi said to them, it's important that you commit an equal amount of money to a Jewish or non-Jewish cause, have a better feeling about their Jewish identity because of that instruction from their rabbi than if they were allowed to just give it to the cause of their choice. There was a teaching opportunity right there that we were trying to convey, okay? So how do we kind of keep the, you know, the principle in mind even as we are given permission to prioritize ourselves and the world's closest to us? So now, yeah. I don't have to stand on, on hand, but do I recall that outside of orthodoxy, 90% of Jewish families that are profit dollars in America go to non-Jewish causes? Uh, I haven't seen that stat, uh, but there was a major study by uh, Gary Tobin, who passed away, was a friend of mine, um, showing he studied Jewish megadonors, where he showed the vast amount of money from Jewish megadonors are going to the cultural arts, museums, universities, hospitals, right? That's for sure. So this brings us now to the cheat sheet with the answers to the, for the punchline for all my jokes. Let's pass this around. And this is really... This passage actually epitomizes this multivocal tradition that we that we come from. Yeah. Did Gary go into um, understanding why that was that um, Jewish philanthropists gave more than non-Jewish causes in Jewish families? Yeah. The, the the over it's it's actually this was not complicated. The fact of the matter is Jews, all people. People's, let me say it differently, not just about Jews, because we're not unique in this way. People's philanthropy is driven in large measure based on where they can acquire the most status. It's status-driven. Is there an element of altruism involved? Yes. But we know that philanthropic behavior is also driven by who you want to impress, who you owe a favor to, who you, expect, who you intend to ask something for, you know, three months from now, so I give to your favorite cause today, and, you know, three months later, I'm not surprised when you call me for your favorite cause. That's the way it works, okay? And Jews uh, aspire to have status in the general society. It carries way more status points than getting status in the Jewish world. If I had a choice between having my name on the, this, the chapel in this congregation, Solel, or my name on the uh, Phoenix Philharmonic Auditorium, whatever else, it's a no-brainer for me, okay? Now, what you do find is that, and this is where the spectrum from orthodox to reform actually is pretty consistent. The more traditional you are on the spectrum, the higher the percentage of the money you're giving to your own parochial causes, and the further you go on the scale of 
liberal Judaism, the more likely you are to support more universal general causes and not to be so parochial about your philanthropy. That's, that's pretty consistent, okay? As is, by the way, the correlation between political voting and attitudes between people more traditional and people more liberal. Both religiously and politically, they correlate almost directly, okay? You, will, you only have Jews, you know, the, the, you have to go to the Orthodox community to find uh, the pro-Trump numbers outnumbering the pro-Hillary numbers from the last presidential election. And the same is true for several elections going back, okay? But in any other segment of the Jewish community, it's overwhelmingly Democratic voters, voters not Republican. So let's come to this verse because we're limited in time and I wanted just to, we only have about 10 minutes to go, uh, or maybe eight. So this may ring a bell. We're gonna read just the first part of it because uh, it's a very famous passage from the Mishnah, okay? It says, therefore humans were created singly, one at a time, to teach you that whoever destroys a single soul, and then it says of Israel, scripture accounts it as if he or she had destroyed a full world. And whosoever saves one soul of Israel, scripture accounts it as if she had saved a full world. And for the sake of peace among people, one should not say to his or her fellow, my parent is greater than yours, and that the heretic should not say, there are many powers in heaven. Let's just stop right there. Now, what strikes you strange about this passage? What do you want to know? What question is, are you dying to ask about this? I'm surprised you focused on my parent is greater than yours as opposed to I am greater than you or um, you know, what I do is better than what you do. Okay. Okay, let's leave it there. Any other questions about the, the passage we just read? Yeah. yeah. It says the soul of Israel. Yeah. The soul of Israel doesn't say. The soul. So if you save, you save 100, you're not saving the whole world? Let's try this. You're onto something important, but I want to frame it a little bit differently, okay? If we took out the word Israel from that passage, how would you, what would you say its meaning is? If, if you just read that and it didn't say Israel, whoever destroys a single soul, the Torah says it's like you destroyed a full world. If you save one soul, Torah says you saved a full world. What is, what's that teaching? We're all equal. Right. It's, it's the ultimate universal statement, okay? It's kind of where you started before, okay? That there's no qualification for who our neighbor is. It's everyone, okay? And even if we can't get to that, our resources may be too limited to help the child in Biafra, but in principle, they're as deserving of our help as, you know, our nephew whomever it's going to be, right? So if we take Israel out of this, it's the ultimate universal teaching. And if Israel's in it, it's the ultimate parochial teaching. Like the only way you're saving the world is if you're saving another Jewish life. It's all about, it's all about us. It's all about our team, all about our tribe, all about our co-religions, okay? Now, here's what's really curious. If you go to the earliest editions of the Mishnah, Okay, we're now going back to third, fourth century of the Common Era. Earl, all of the early editions of the Mishnah had this passage without the word Mi Yisrael. How did it get in here? Who put it in? And why? If all the original editions of the Mishnah wrote it universally, whoever saves a life is as if they save an entire world. Whoever destroys a life is as if they destroyed a whole world. How did it get in here? What do you think? The anti-Semitism, the pogroms, and everything 
more important to save your fellow Jew than the, the public and the large. Right, so it's the same reaction. Excellent. It's the same reaction as the rabbi who taught, why would I return a lost item to a Gentile? They would never return to me. In other words, there's some equivalence here, okay? In other words, the reality of the living situation, you know, we, we live on two planes. There's a theoretical plane of like what should be, and then the real plane of like what's really going on. So, you know, you can say, we could all say here, you know, give us, give a, uh, this is actually a mitzvah, to greet every person with a kindly face. Would we, how many people would agree with that mitzvah? Raise your hands. Okay? Okay, now, let's say you walk out the door and you encounter someone who did something horrendous to you yesterday. Like, you were like ready to strangle the person, okay? Are you gonna greet them with, this, with a friendly face? No, you're lucky if you don't punch them in the nose, okay? You know, you, you're gonna restrain yourself from doing that. You restrain, okay, you may cross the street, okay, it's not gonna, so we've got the idea that we can all say, sounds great, like mom and apple pie, and then the reality of like, but that guy, you know, cut me off in the car, or like didn't do this, or didn't do that, or you know, didn't give my, my son a job, or whatever it's gonna be. There are a million reasons to be angry people. Our, the list is way long, okay? So, so the emotion comes, comes in. So the same experience that generated the ruling that you found offensive 20 minutes ago, no need to return lost items to Gentiles, was motivating the person to say, uh, he who saves a Jewish life, it's like they saved the entire world. And one who destroys a Jewish life, it's like they destroy it. That's what came back in. And so what actually is, the rabbis edited the Mishnah to insert a more parochial, particularistic meaning than what was initially intended. Okay? But that's not the end of the story. So in the first wave, we have a beautiful universal teaching which we'd like to put on a poster in our dorm room, okay? Second wave, reality sets in, and Jews are, being, Jews are being so badly treated by Gentiles in their experience in the world, in the diaspora, that it kind of gets a little bit of reality testing in here. Third phase, for much of the Middle Ages, there were disputations between Jews and non-Jews. They were actually, it was like sport. It was like the Super Bowl, okay? There would be, an entire town would be called together for a disputation. Usually it was the leading rabbi of the Jewish community who would argue against a Gentile, in most cases, who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. So they knew their Talmud. And they would actually have a debate in a public setting. And the consequence of the debate was that the loser is killed. It's kind of like the Roman Colosseum, right? Like, like that's what happens. And it's not just that the loser gets killed, but all the people get banished. So it's, it's, all, it's all staged. It's all set up, okay? It's set up for the Jews to lose. And it happens again and again and again. And in that setting, you had non-Jewish authorities who were in control of Jewish lives and the Jewish future, who actually were combing through books, not because they studied, they didn't go to yeshiva. They had these... Jews who converted to Christianity who would read the Talmud and say, is there anything anti-Christian or anti-Gentile in here? And if there is, that's the excuse for me to kick all the Jews out of my empire. Happened all the time. And so as a result of Christian oppression and persecution, the Jews actually went back to a safer reading of the passage. Even though they probably, in the midst of that terror and that persecution, the Jews said, we're way better with the original version of this than the version that 
you know, three generations ago put in because they don't like the Gentiles. And that's why, because, you know, people say, like, sacred text. You know, so you see the Torah, it's sacred. Mission is sacred. Okay, these are historical documents. They're affected by reality, by time, by circumstance. Okay, and the people who work with it and interpret it, you know, they're also living day to day and have human emotions. So this is in some ways a Rorschach test of the Jewish historical experience on the question about how wide is our universe of obligation. Okay, there's no one answer to it. Now I think what we know to be true is that we should hopefully find ways, in the same way that Moshe Feinstein in the 20th century said, listen, this whole thing about not breaking Shabbat to save Jews but not non-Jews is like just can't cut it any longer. I think you know, we're in the 20th century where we, we understand, and, and here I want to use these two phrases which we saw in the initial piece. A lot of the early teachings, the Talmud, last, last minute, okay. Uh, a lot of them have this thing called Mishum Eva, long A. Uh, a lot of people say, like, whenever teaching, that's a very universal teaching, they say, why? Mishum Eva, because they actually hate us. They hate our guts. And if we don't, like, teach something that's really universal and friendly founding, it's going to come back to haunt us, okay? But then a lot of those teachings actually start giving the other line, that is, Mipnei Darchei Shalom. So you find other verses where you have a very universal teaching, and the reason is not because they hate us, but that is the way of peace. And I think that all of us, you know, we like to think of ourselves as moderns or postmoderns, so we're so sophisticated and enlightened. The reality is we're sort of struggling with the same issue that's no, that, that the rabbis have been struggling with for centuries, okay? How do we move from a mishum eva mentality, it's them against us, they hate us, and so we're allowed to privilege ourselves, to a Nei Shalom mentality saying, you know what, we've got to create a world, to paraphrase Martin Luther King, the beloved community, where we see all people as deserving of respect and dignity and, and, and the pursuit of happiness, okay? How do we create that kind of world? And I think that's what we really are obligated because the Torah is in our, in our, in our hands. It came out of the heavens, it's in our hands now, and so it's, about, it's how we translate it and interpret it and manifest it in our own lives. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.